Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 122, and we're taking a walk alongside a wagon, living with the Voortrekkers. Let's take another look at the push factors driving the Voortrekkers away from their frontier farms. Most had lived on the margins of society for generations, part of the first group of Dutch who began spreading out from the peninsula in the 17th century, developing an ethos of independence and a culture of self-reliance. They were naturally anti-establishment, if you like, while being presented as ultra-conservative in their religion. In modern terms, this implies certain characteristics, which creates a classic misreading of who they were. Remember, the first trekkers were not averse to marrying Koikoi and even Amakosa women. It was only later that their conservatism morphed into a belief in racial separation. You know enough by now not to make the mistake of double-guessing our ancestors based on modern politics and society's rules. The prism of the present is a social blindfold when it comes to perception. It gets the crude and raw politician of any epoch into a logic gridlock, an intellectual cul-de-sac. There was no doubt that the actions of Lord Glenelg when he took over the colonial office in 1835 exacerbated the Boers' perceptions of the English. Remember how he had met Andre Stockenström, the Dutch Swede, who had briefed him about how the Khoikhoi servants were treated in the Cape. Glenelg then overturned decisions to move the frontier to the Kai River, an action which marked him both as a blunderer and a misguided liberal. He was also to become possibly the most biased Brit against the Boers so far, and by the end of our story you'll hear of many, many more. Throughout August 1835, Glenelg had heard the evidence presented by witnesses at Buxton's Aboriginal Committee, who presented a variety of experienced viewpoints on the circumstances of the Cape Frontier. When Glenelg heard from Andri Stockenström, the Boer who was born and raised on a Cape farm on the frontier, whose overall experience was acknowledged as the most extensive of anybody's, it was a hearing that lasted for days. In infinite details, Stockenstrom spoke of a Cape frontier, about how it was locked in a vicious circle of action and reaction from where no one escaped, stock theft by Koikoi and Koza, followed by reprisals and commandos, followed by war. Rinse, repeat. Stockenstrom further told Glenelg that nine out of ten reports of stock theft were actually fraud, that the frontier Boers and the British settlers were lying and wanted to enrich themselves at the expense of the indigenous people. Then, when the commandos punished the Khoza for actual stock theft, the settlers targeted the wrong people. The Khoza thus resisted these, and the friction led to war, and the war was led to the Khoza losing their land which was the overall ambition of the most greedy settlers amongst those who'd arrived in South Africa. Glenelg was also briefed by Major William Dundas, an artillery officer who served as Landros in Grahamstown, a man who was no friend of the Khoza. And even he told Glenelg in a chilling session in 1835 that the price that would be paid for Governor Benjamin Durban's new province called Queen Adelaide would be expensive, enormously so. He wasn't talking about right or wrong, he was talking about pound and shilling. 
Nothing scared a colonial secretary more than the cost of administering a colony. This was a political nightmare back home. The citizens were happy to boast about their empire, but very unhappy paying for it. Dundas pointed out that there was no way to defend this new province, vast as it was, and if it was occupied by soldiers, he warned that the Amakosa would go to war incessantly. It would be white upon black, and the blacks would fall back, and then it would be black on black, a conflict driving onwards and deeper into the continent. Then Glenelg heard from Captain Robert Atchison, who outlined the trials and tribulations of Makoma. He had a high opinion of the man, but as an enemy he was dangerous, and yet once he gave his word, he said, Makoma would keep it. Unlike the British, who lied constantly to pretty much everyone they'd met, then kidnapped Kosa kings and managed to kill one. There's a lot of talk about the ethics of empire when it's cricket and when it's not, and the biggest hypocrites when it came to whether it was cricket or not were the inventors of the game. We've heard how Glenelg ordered the immediate abandonment of the annexed territory and said a new system of mutual security between the chiefs and the colonial government was to be instituted. Listening to all of this was the new King of England, otherwise known as the Duke of Clarence, King William the Fourth, who had served in the Navy during the Revolutionary Wars. He saw firsthand how England let America slip away, and he had also fought Napoleon. This king was not too keen on handing over territory to anyone. So King William IV rejected Glenelg's order to overturn the annexation, at least at first. This flummoxed the colonial secretary, who then tried to mobilize support from the cabinet against the king. As usual with these things, eventually there was a compromise. De Urban was told in December 1835 that the abandonment of his province he had annexed on behalf of the king was to be delayed. However, that the overturning of annexation was being considered at all was a bombshell for this poor bloke. Historian George Corey described Glenelg's order as perhaps the most momentous dispatch in South African history, which is pushing it a bit. But he was right, probably, in his next comment. There has probably not been one which has been so effective in moulding the characteristic troublous history of the country as this one. Our country is a conglomeration of chaos. This is no place for ninnies to hang out. This is not the Netherlands or even frontier America, albeit similar. For anyone who's born and raised on our continent and in our region, we know this. It's a territory molded from a troublous history, folks. We may look like just another post-colonial frontier, but we are unique. Glenelg's momentous dispatch was 150 pages long and expressed his view that the conduct of the colonists had in fact caused the Sixth Frontier War. He pointed to Harry Smith's scorched-earth policy of destroying Kosa villages as proof, and worse, it proved that he wasn't really a proper English soldier as he rained vengeance upon the Kosa. The province of Queen Adelaide was to be returned to the Kosa, although that was only to take place at the end of 1836. Before then, de Urban had the chance of changing Glenelg's mind. However, from the language of this document, it was clear that Glenelg was offering a sop to de Urban, this was going to happen come what may. The territory was going back to the Kosa. The shock inside the Cape Colony must not be underestimated. Here was this lord and mighty hoity-toity Glenelg passing judgment on the scrabbling colonists living as they were on the front lines. How dare this bewigged political deployee insult their integrity? 
It's true, this story became the most deeply embedded consequence of the war in the colonial psyche. It was an imprint that never faded. It was bitterly mulled over for the next 100 years. And it was also an ironic mental shift. The moment that the English-speaking settlers became African, they'd been thrown under the colonial bus by both their king and their country. They suddenly realized that their homeland was no longer their friend. The political leadership of the British government had turned them into aliens. They no longer recognized themselves as English. This would take another generation or two to play out, but folks, it was the moment. What we have to understand is that while this was going on in relation to the 1820 settler stock, further northeast in Port Natal, the settlers there were very much in favor of the British government. There were two different sets of English speakers, which we kind of lumped together these days. Interestingly enough, something like this was also going on in Canada and in Australia and New Zealand. English speakers were grappling with their own nationality. But Glenelg's document left a psychological scar on British and Boer colonials. It was the first and last time in the entire 19th century that it forged an absolute unanimity and political common cause between English and Boer. And this also forged a new state of mind and hardened racial antagonism. The Boers found Glenelg's decision easier to cope with than the 1820 settlers. The Boers had never trusted the English, so it was time to leave. The Boers had always directed their own fate, while the 1820 settler was implacably tied to their country's foreign policy. The Boers were interested in land, but didn't really care for Glenelg's annexation of the province of Queen Adelaide. They'd still be vassals to the British Empire there anyway. But it was the principle of Glenelg's dispatch that burned a searing brand into their consciousness, a policy where they'd be under permanent humanitarian vigilance, which would be manipulated by the Khoikhoi and the Khoza, they thought. And secondly, it would lead to the dreaded and much-despised missionaries having the power of intervention over their lives. And we return after that short analysis to Langhans Janser van Rensbach, who'd quarreled with Louis Trichard and taken off on his own to Delagoa Bay. As he heard previously, he'd made three mistakes. First, to go alone. Second, he'd shot out entire herds of elephant in what could only be called a greed lust, and his wagons were now seriously overloaded with ivory. Third, he'd expended a great deal of vital gunpowder and musket balls. This was going to cost him and his family their lives. But first, Sir Harry Smith. His beloved wife, Juana Maria Deloche Dolores de Leon Smith, or just Lady Smith, if you live in KZN, now barely out of her teens, had joined her 48-year-old husband on the frontier. His huge domain remained under martial law, allowing him to fiddle with Amakosa's society. There were going to be many more like Smith who seized the opportunities the British Empire gave to satisfy a romantic notion about personal kingship, fiefdom, and isolation from interference. Many South Africans live inside this mental zone today, and this infects all races and peoples, this rebel yell of individuality. We are driven to be rebels, and with it our individual belief systems about how to restructure and socially engineer, experiment with our societies, blueprint new ones, particularly for our diverse people. 
This would be behind Sir George Grey's administration in the 1850s and Sir Alfred Milner's philosophy during the Boer War at the turn of the century and even Hendrik Verwoet in the 20th century. Back in 1835-36, Harry Smith was pondering about how to fix the cause, and the answer, he thought, was to get rid of the chiefs. He wrote that he had joyfully and enthusiastically entered upon the task of rescuing from barbarism thousands of our fellow creatures endowed by nature with excellent understanding and powers of reasoning as regards the present. He regarded the missionaries' attempts at changing and upgrading Amakosa society as mistaken, and like many others after him, he saw a divine will in what he was doing. The idle bickerings of individuals against us will be like the dying embers of a fire, compared to the glorious and refulgent sun, divine will to place me in lieu of the dry and sarcastic tenets of a rigid Presbyterian fanatic. Refulgent is the great word. It means to shine brightly. No time to lose, then. Smith embarked on this sociological mission, his anthropological engineering experiment, and took aim at the Tosa chiefs. He wished what he called the surveillance and magisterial power to be wielded against them. Newly appointed agents were to live amongst the chiefs, including Charles Lennox Stretch, who was stationed at Fort Cox and would be the agent to the Nguika people, that crucial Rarabi line. This is a far cry from what the Boers had been up to. They had never had the fixed objective of destroying the Tkosa. They sought accommodation amongst the Tkosa, hiding amongst them from the British at times, attaching themselves to the Tkosa courts, people like Kunrat the base, Louis Trichard, and many others. From these days hence... The Amatkosa were to face two forces bent on their destruction. One was the British colonial establishment, its military, civil and settler leadership. The other, the missionaries, who sought to detach the Amatkosa from their ancient traditions. These days, political buffoons would lump the Boers together with the British just because of the colour of their skin. But even there, they were wrong. The Boers were burnt brown by the sun, the British settler a flaming red. That's perhaps impish to say so boldly. But the truth is that some of the people bent on the destruction of the Amakosa were trying to turn them into Europeans. And these people were not the Boers. They were the English. Meanwhile, the Fuertrecker forward parties were on the move. Nowhere in the new worlds settled by Europe during its oceanic expansion was there to be such a dramatically swift advance of the frontiers of settlement as there was in South Africa between 1836 and 1838. The sudden invasion of lands to the north by organized and well-armed men is not to be underestimated. With a steady determination, these wagon trains gained momentum, departing from parental encampments and modest dwellings to go mark out their own farms somewhere far beyond. This great trek was following tracks already opened by predecessors. It was not a mystery where they were going. These voyages on the felt had lost most of the fear for the foretrekkers. They were heading into familiar territory with the image and promise of those who'd gone before ringing in their ears. By April 1836, one of these wagon trains, relatively small by the standards of what was to follow, under the leadership of Lang Hans Janssen von Rensburg, had taken issue with Louis Trichard and headed to Straitpoort, from where he planned to trek to Delagoa Bay. There he stopped at Straitpoort, waiting for Andres Portgieter's 200 people to arrive. 
Portheater's large trek party was on their way north. Von Rensburg had been told this, but after several weeks there was no sign of the man. So von Rensburg and his now overloaded wagons took off towards the Sotbansberg, but one of his men fell off his horse hunting an elephant near the Sant Rafir and broke his neck and died. That was a sign of things to come. Van Rensburg turned southeast and set off for Delagoa Bay, hoping to secure the route to a port from where they could export their wares, avoiding the accursed English who now controlled Cape Town and were about to seize control of Port Natal. As they descended, the wagon train slowed. The cattle began to die, infected by tsetsifla, sleeping sickness. Van Rensburg was forced to turn towards Anambani, which was closer, and he fervently hoped there'd be no tsetsifly there. He was wrong. By now, most of his oxen were dying. Those still alive were very sick, thin, unable to pull their weight. And that was a problem, because Van Rensburg had stuffed his wagons full of ivory. So he resorted to pulling the wagons through the bush in relays. Perhaps he should turn back. Perhaps you should leave the ivory and push on in a couple of wagons just to make it out alive. But no, he kept on, crossing the Lebombo Mountains in June and reaching the Limpopo River, setting up his camp there to try and recover. Unfortunately, it was slap-bang in the middle of the Magwamba people's territory, led by their fairly violent chief, Shoshangana. They were known as the Knob-Noses because part of their initiation ceremony included mutilating their own noses. Shoshangana heard about the ivory, the metal wheels, about the guns. So he ordered his lieutenant, Malital, to attack the Boers at night, and they did. But the nine men managed to hold off wave upon wave of Magwamba assault, the warriors being mowed down by the muskets. The trekkers were firing blindly into the night, the women reloading like mad. It was to be hours later, in the early morning, that what Trichard had warned van Rensburg came to pass. He began running out of ammunition. Having slaughtered so many elephants, their blood was going to be his family's blood. The Magwamba deployed a koi-koi trick and drove their herd of cattle straight into the lager, upending the Fuertrekker's defences, and they used animals as shields, just as the koi-koi had done to the Portuguese on the peninsula in the 1480s. One after another, the Fuertrekkers were stabbed, including the men, women and children, they were then dispatched with a blow to the head with knobkeries, the traditional African coup de gras. Louis Trichard knew nothing of what was happening. His camp was on a salt pan northwest of the Sotpansberg Mountains. By now, he'd been joined by Kunrad de Base's mixed-race son, Gabriel, who had warned Trichard of the Tsetse fly threat and not to continue towards Delagoa Bay. De Base, a character from our earlier podcasts, was dead by now, but his tribe of a few hundred were living along the Sotpansberg and beyond and they had taken to robbing and plundering the locals. Back south in the Cape, no one knew yet what had happened to van der Ensbach. The authorities wouldn't have cared anyway. The missionaries had begun returning to their burnt art stations at the end of the Sixth Frontier War, their properties devastated. Harry Smith was living in King Williamstown with Lady Smith and meeting Oza chiefs like Makoma, where the soldier indulged in the kind of social engineering game, one which the chiefs were also skilled at playing too. It was a broad farce, according to those who monitored both sides and wrote down their views. The Matkosa continued to rustle cattle in the colony, infiltrating the farms, but it was a case of the destitute preying on the destitute because the white farmers had lost most of their herds as well. 
Other animals had ended up in the stomachs of the Empire's soldiers. They needed to be fed as they ransacked Koza villages. Tensions grew in the land of Queen Adelaide province as it was parceled off to various Koza clans as distinct territories. Some now found themselves forcibly removed in a manner that their descendants would rediscover later in the 20th century. Some, of course, refused to move. The land was earmarked for other chieftains or they had been reserved for military forts or white occupation. Harry Smith then enforced these removals using his soldiers, pursuing and dislodging those who returned after they had been driven out. Smith began burning huts again. Within the last three weeks, I have burned 2,700 huts, he boasted to Durban. These were mainly Kosa villages on land intended for the colonists. For their part, the Kosa chiefs humoured Smith as much as possible, confessing remorse when settler cows were rustled, professing outrage at the delinquents among their people, praising Smith enthusiastically when he claimed he was going to advance their civilization, starting with eradicating what he called their witchcraft. More about that next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility. Don't forget to head off to the website desmolatham.blog if you want to contact me. There's a form there. All through Twitter, at deslatham. Until next, salagali. Thank you.